the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm Paul Spain. I'm Jim Thompson. And I'm Nate Dunn. Welcome along, guys. Great to have you both here. Nate, maybe you can start just by introducing yourself for listeners who... uh who aren't familiar with you? Oh, okay, I own a company called 3Bit. We're a small software house based here in Auckland. Also blog on GeekZone and I own Nate on Twitter, which seems to blow people's minds that I've only got a four-letter Twitter handle. There you go. There you go. And Jim, where do you fit into the technology world? That's an interesting question. I'm not really sure where I fit into the technology world, <laughs> but I'm the chief engineer for Unisys Corporation and we're a global IT concern. Uh, with presence here in, in New Zealand. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's great great to have you here. Uh, real, real treat. So we'll look forward to hearing uh, some of your opinions and uh, and getting a bit of a, an update on uh, on what's happening in the world of uh, Unisys. Now, uh, first up, just wanted to uh, jump into some local news. We've had today announcement from uh, Vodafone around new rural broadband plans. And I was look, looking through these, and really they're bringing down the cost of being able to access broadband when you're in uh, those sort of rural settings, whether you're you know farm based or whether you're right on the, you know on the edge or beyond the edge of a of a city. And uh, yeah, I think this is this is kind of interesting because the the price differential we're we're seeing now. Vodafone have, have had some rural broadband plans for some time that are based around uh, their three three G mobile infrastructure. And I asked them what sort of performance, uh, you know, what's your typical sort of performance? And they said uh, that they were able to deliver to those customers around eight megabits. Um, that was the, the sort of average performance that they were delivering um, going back about a year. Which, when we compare that with what a lot of people in the city get, that's um, that's actually a, that's actually an okay performance. Uh, but what they're moving to now is is the four G and LTE infrastructure, and they're expecting that to bump the performance for those customers up to uh, somewhere between fifteen and thirty uh, megabits over uh, over the mobile network. So, quite a nice uh, jump coming for those for well for a lot of people in that uh, in that space. It's going to be comparable to VDSL. So. You obviously can't run infrastructure to support VDSL because you've got one farm and then five or ten k's up the road you'll have another farm. So it doesn't make any sense to have the cabinets the whole way around. So, yeah, and I get four amazing 4G coverage in the city, so I'm assuming that on the south sites that don't have um, lots of people on them, they're going to get really good speed. And at 30, would you say it was 30 meg up and down? Well, it, it's going to vary, and you know, being mobile, inf- mobile uh, infrastructure, it's going to depend how many people well, are accessing it. It's going to be better than dial, it's it's be better dial up at least. But it's you know, it's it's only improving, yeah. and uh, you know, as we get these new cell sites rolled rolled out, uh, yeah, it, it really helps. And with that move to 4G, it also means there's a there's a bit more you know, bandwidth available overall. Yeah. So they're now able to offer these new plans uh, that are f- just fractionally higher than the previous plans, but go from uh, 30 gigs worth of data. So the previous uh, plans, people were able to get 30 gigs for I think around 90 dollars. Uh, another 10 dollars bumps uh, those users up to 80 gigs. Mm. So I mean. Of course, we we would you know those users probably like to have unlimited, but eighty gigs is actually enough to do a to do a, a whole chunk more than what you can do on thirty. Yeah, you can probably get away with a fair chunk of Netflix and YouTubing and so on on um, on an eighty gig yeah. eighty gig plan. So I know they live in really nice parts of the country, but they also have amazing internet. Yeah, quite nice. So I mean, I was not not quite uh, ultra fast broadband speeds, uh, not quite fiber speeds, but uh, you know affordable. 
and, uh, and, and pretty snappy, so that's good. Um, the other announcement that came through today is from the government, and this re- relates uh, primarily to ultra-fast broadband, and you know, we've, most of us here have heard about uh, the challenges or have been involved with the challenge of getting fibre to our homes, uh, particularly those that live in a, uh, in a shared dwelling, a multi-dwelling unit, uh, or down a long shared driveway. Those things have really created a lot of complications for getting ultra-fast broadband implemented. Uh, so they're doing a review now to look at those types of, uh, those types of challenges and how they can be addressed from a, from a government perspective and whether they can change some laws to Because wasn't the issue that we, have, we now have fibre all over the place, but mm, the uptake of actual people plugging that last mile hasn't yeah. actually been amazingly high. Well, actually, it's been higher than I think it's been higher than the prediction. So it's, yeah. it's doing reasonably well. But there are a lot of people that are really frustrated because you know these scenarios come up. For instance, if you've got a shared driveway, maybe it's shared between three, four, five houses uh, that are sharing that driveway. Um, everyone has to sign off and agree that you can uh, you can run the fibre down the driveway. Now, if one of those you know, owners happens to be away overseas or they've got other priorities and they don't sign it, well, nobody gets their ultra-fast exactly. broadband. They're a lie. Um, you're, not getting a, you're not getting broadband. Yeah, or there's some sort of dispute between neighbours, right? So there are a range of scenarios that can hold that up, you know, similar things in apartment buildings and, and, and so on. So, uh, you know, they're looking at ways they can address that. Jim, have you seen uh, you know, similar challenges in the in the US? How did, yeah, actually, how did you know, I was thinking in? about some situations. So we, of course, have fiber um, and bandwidth bounding around, but we've had the same kind of problem where, um, depending where where people live in an area that has good coverage, the uh, the provider may not bring fiber close enough to them for them to get it because it's inconvenient. There's not enough. There's just not enough households to to be served. Uh, so I think it's really forward looking that. Um, uh, New Zealand has taken the position they have in terms of trying to really push out the infrastructure. Um, you know, even even with the the plans that I hear you talking about today, I, I still think that you know um, demand is not going to be satisfied in anytime soon. But it's the right direction. It's definitely the right direction. Yeah, and I think you know we just, we have to keep progressing that. And it's yeah, you know, it's great to see them considering some changes. The other uh, challenge that they're looking to address is some of the the rural situations where. Uh, and that they they gave an example in uh, Northland where North Power were looking at getting fibre to a to a block of homes, and I think it, the, the number mentioned was maybe uh, you know in the three hundred range of, of homes that they wanted to reach. But to to get there, they wanted to reuse some existing infrastructure that, that they already have uh, runs through a whole lot of pop- properties, and um, you know I guess because it was because they're a power company. Uh, you know they're able to run these these lines in uh, you know varying ways, and uh, the the law allows that. But if they wanted to put uh, fibre down that same uh, that same sort of channel, uh, they had to basically go back and get permission from the maybe hundred or two hundred uh, properties that were being passed on the way to the destination, and maybe even you know buy a little bit of that land to to do it, even though they've actually got you know infrastructure in place that they could uh, they could reutilise. Uh, so they're, they're looking at ways to resolve those situations because in that case, I think the build cost was more than would be more than doubled to achieve what they were looking to do because of these extra you know, legal processes they would need to uh, jump through. So, yeah, looking looking forward to seeing uh, seeing what the outcome of that is. But it all uh, all seems in the in the positive direction. 
Now, today, big news from uh, Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, and we're, we're kind of used to Apple making all sorts of announcements, of whether it's its product or or, uh, or software-wise, at, uh, at WD, WWDC. Um, and, yeah, first up, uh, Apple Watch. Seems like some improvements uh, coming along that way uh, with the new version of the OS for, uh, for Apple Watch. Have either of you had much of a, a look at the Apple Watch at all? Uh, Jim, you're, you're wearing the uh, the Pebble at the moment. I am. Now, did you say you were waiting on an Apple Watch? I have an Apple Watch uh, promised in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, so, okay. Uh, uh, you know, in, in my field and the things I do, I like I like technology. And, you know, I, I told you a story earlier how my car told the app on my phone to tell me to get an iWatch. Um, That's brilliant. And, you know, it's... Uh, I see a lot of demand. You know, it's one of these things that you know. I looked at, at at a number of smartwatches, and I think Apple has done what Apple does best, which is they recognize it's about the ecosystem of applications and the use cases that you can wrap around um, that wearable device. And so, I think it's. I think there's a lot of potential there. We'll 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 see how how good it plays out in the coming months. But I think it's got a huge amount of potential. Yeah, I mean, it's still pretty early days, isn't it? And days. and I mean, it's good to see that they're. They're progressing reasonably quickly. They've got this new uh, version of the OS. One of the frustrations for me has been the, the speed off fire-up, for instance, the Uber app. And it, you know, it's great that there's an Uber app on the watch, um, but it, you know, it can take so long to, to actually start up that you think, well, I could have actually just pulled out my phone and used my phone to, to do that job. But when you, com- you know, compare uh, most of the other wearables, they, they're just, they don't have the ecosystem you talked about. Right. Uh, and I think that's that's kind of what's interesting. Nate, have you been wearing a smart watch? I know no, you were, no, you, I don't you even, were, you I were don't looking even at wear Android it. Wear at one stage. I was looking at Android Watch. The, I was reading a, a blog post today about the Apple Watch, and one the guy said, which was a strange thing to focus on, he said the thing he liked the most about the Apple Watch was the haptic feedback of having, if a call or a text message comes through, it vibrates on his wrist. And he said if his phone vibrates, he often won't feel it. To the fact where you could turn off all audio alerts from your phone and just get the little he said it feels like someone's tapping on the wrist saying hey your phone's ringing hey this and he, that was the, the one feature he liked the most I thought what a strange but you know very important thing for him and something that maybe Apple hadn't thought of that people would focus on is the actual yeah, vibrating uh, well I think you know a key there is it's attached to your skin often you won't notice a, a phone that's mm. maybe you know, in, in your pocket uh, and the Apple Watch do, you know does go to some degree of you know personalization around those things so uh, yeah I, th- I mean I think for me that's always been one of the things I've found quite useful is the notifications on well on any wearable device but the level that the Apple Watch uh, takes it to has, has been a, you know a, a step further than, uh, than than what we've seen elsewhere yeah and the fact that it's also bi-directional I think that that's huge I'm looking forward to find my phone on the watch that'll be probably a very useful app <laughs> Well, all, all those sorts of things come in handy, right? Um, in fact, uh, Nate, you know, I know you've just come back from uh, Huawei's uh, event in I'm uh, a Huawei fanboy now in, uh, in, in in Singapore. So you've been uh, you know you've been deeply in, seen, in, embedded in their in their doctrine. Um, yep. But you know, one of their things is being able to sort of uh, call across the room with its voice recognition to uh, to find just, your phone. I was right? just thinking, I really wanted to say, yeah, it's a strange feature. I thought I'm sitting there thinking. Why don't you just do what everyone else does, which is where you just ask someone else, hey, have you got your phone? Can I ring mine? Yeah. But you can call out to your phone and you program it with whatever name you want and then it will buzz and vibrate and away you go. It'll actually turn itself, even from standby, it'll turn itself on and 
the, the challenge that I've found with that, and uh, you know, I end up with a lot of uh, devices that have ro- voice recognition that are maybe plugged in in my office or, or at home at any one time, is these things can, can kick in. So the other day I was on a phone call and I had a, uh, a Windows phone that's running uh, Wind- Windows 10 on it. And so that that's geared up with court, the latest you know beta of Cortana, and uh, right in the middle of my phone call, I don't know what I said, but it chirped up and start. You know, it was like it was yelling. It was so loud right next to the phone. And I've had the Huawei one do uh, do do something similar. So yeah, some of these technologies got a little way to go in terms of their um, mm. uh, understanding, or maybe it's uh, just you know what they they're programmed with. And I guess the fact that I just said. Cortana or you know these things that, that they can wake wake up your device. I think we're so. in that strange place with a lot of these technologies where we're still trying to figure out what they're good at, and so a lot of the imagined use cases are are a bit much and a bit contrived. Yeah. Um, but I mean, they all have their place, and I think we'll all find, you know, in the next year or two, um, some really good use cases around these technologies. Hmm. But I am looking forward to your phone arguing with your other phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, throw uh, yeah, all the all the phones next to each other into a into a discussion or conv- yeah, bit of a fight. Uh, now a few other announcements. Uh, Apple Pay is coming to the UK, so that's not quite New Zealand, but it shows that Apple are obviously putting the effort into to push it push it out a little bit further internationally. Um, of course, yeah, Google are. Uh, 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 pushing things in that space as well, um, uh, Jim. Have you used Apple Pay at all? Is, there, is there, do you see much interest in it in the US? I've not. There is interest in it. I mean, one of the complaints I hear is from people about the near field wishing Apple would open that up broader because um, the near field today is only is only for Apple Pay, but on an Android device you can use it for other applications. And so, some entrepreneurs that would like to be able to do other things with it are, are feeling a bit frustrated over that. But Apple Pay is getting traction. I think that um, there's people that historically were, were anti-touch um, payment that, um, that see value in it for, for one reason or another. Yeah, and I mean, that, that whole uh, p- payment area is quite fascinating as, as technology and, and credit card and payment systems come together. Um, we will be doing an episode probably in the next um, four to eight weeks where we'll, we'll get someone in from one of the banks, probably Visa, and, yeah. uh, and have a bit more of a, a, bit a drill down on some of those guys. topics. I mean, in the sense that the whole payment system is kind of being challenged by a new way of affecting payment. Yeah. And... Um, so, I mean, watch that one. The banks are going to lose some share in, in payments and checks and those kinds of things, and the credit card companies are also at risk. Uh, so it's really interesting to watch that whole segment of the market as it's about to go through some significant evolution. It is, and, you know, of course, uh, you know, they've got their story to tell on uh, on why you should yeah, stick with their, their ways of doing it, right? It is a lot of fun to go to, like, a restaurant or a bar, and then because we've got an app called Symbol, which is a New Zealand-based sort of Apple Pay. And it is fun to go somewhere and just put your phone and then it beeps. And then you get the most confused, bewildered look from the person behind the counter that goes, how did that work? You know, can't tell you as you walk away because it's yeah it's not still not quite so common uh, no it's yet. not at all yeah. very common um, so other other announcements uh, those with with iPhones and iPads and uh, iPods a new version of iOS so iOS nine is uh, is available uh, from now to to developers and uh, be launching uh, next few months. Um, now, Jim, we were talking about this earlier. One of the features they're touting is better battery life, an hour more battery life. Who, who, could, who can't use more battery life? It's a wonderful thing. So do you think do you think that will be an hour increase? I guess it's going to depend on the device, doesn't it, and, and how you use and it. And how you use it. Yeah. 
Um, but I mean, any extra battery life is is, is helpful. Uh, now, the other thing is that they're um, they're they're trying to compete, I guess, a little bit more with. Um, the assistant that we've sort of capabilities we've seen from Google and Google Now um, with uh, the proactive assistant type capabilities that are going to remind you of uh, you remind you of things, having a look in your calendar and seeing you've got a meeting coming up and reminding you of look you need to get get on the road because it's going to take you seventeen minutes and to get there. Traffic is bad today. Yeah, um, th- how well that sort of thing works, I think, varies a lot based on the information they have on a local basis and I've certainly seen uh, software that is is very poor at managing its predictions on uh, traffic so it draws on some traffic data which gives you confidence and then you get stuck because actually the information wasn't so accurate so uh, I recommend a little bit of caution around relying on these things although I do find that uh, Google Maps now is, is, is so good around Auckland uh, that I use it every day before I uh, jump in the car. I'll decide which route I'm going to take based on Google Maps, which just you know it knows the traffic well enough, and you take the wrong direction, and it'll take you an extra yeah twenty thirty percent of the time to uh, to get the, there. So that's kind of kind of handy. Uh, and they've also got a news app coming to uh, to iOS, um, which apparently is very Flipboard uh, like in its uh, in its styling. So. I'm a little bit curious about that because a lot of people use uh, Flipboard as a, a newsreader. Um, you know, very nice in terms of how it, how it presents uh, the news and your RSS feeds and so on. Um, and the the rumor has been in recent days that uh, Twitter were about to buy uh, Flipboard. So uh, this could could have an impact on the valuation of uh, of Flipboard. Now, do you a Flipboard user at all? No, I just tend to use Feedly for. I just I use a lot of RSS feeds. Like I read a lot of blogs and uh, and watch a lot of different sites. But no, I've never. I prefer to see lists of text, and then I can quickly click. And I don't like the the big images, to be honest. Yeah, I, I used Flipboard for a while as well, and I, it it kind of decayed from my perspective, from an interest, and I just I, I just don't feel the need to use it. So it uh, doesn't mean it's bad. Just means it it didn't appeal to me. Mm, mm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what sort of uh, what sort of traction uh, Apple, Apple get with it. Um, and also, Apple have announced the uh, new OS X, uh, El Capitan. Someone want to uh, tell us what El Capitan is for the? Some of our New Zealand audience won't uh, won't know. I think we should, I, I have no idea. Not only not an Apple fanboy, I've got no idea. Jim, just, Jim can probably. Uh, yeah, fill I'm not really an on. Apple fanboy either. I'm just wondering why we're not naming it after leopards and cats anymore. <laughs> why, why, why it's now a you know a, a mountain in Yosemite. Um, uh, so I, I have to tell you, I'm not really uh, I'm not really up on it either. Yeah, but uh, yeah, listeners might not have might not have all realised uh, yeah what it, what it was. So um, thank thank you for filling us in there. Um, so yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I mean, the biggest thing that sort of stood out to me, and I mean, there's huge amounts of information online already around Apple's announcements um, but was it was just that they've, they've really worked hard on performance and how quick apps will start up and you know varying other performance related things so that's uh, that's always helpful so no complaints there um, now other bits and pieces of news uh, robots now we watched some videos uh, earlier guys of um, 
the uh, DARPA's robot challenge, and it was um, it was somewhat amusing actually. These um, um, robots were designed basically to be able to cater to uh, a situation like what we what we saw uh, in Japan with the the last round of earthquakes, which would take us back uh, take us back about four four years ago um, where the Fukushima disaster happened and uh, yeah, they're really really looking at uh, robots that would be able to uh, uh, go in without putting um, live, lives at risk by, by getting into that sort of situation and uh, you know, this, this challenge is designed to find uh, robots that would do the job and um, to be quite humanoid in nature and that they've got arms and legs and so on um, but it seems, Jim, they're um, they're not quite as capable as we are at getting a, getting out and about. Well, I was kind of struck by, you know, what use case were they solving? If the use case was we need you to go in this plant and unplug this cable and plug it in another hole, which is one of the uh, one of the, the test courses, mm. um, why all of these teams felt compelled to build robots that walked like people? Uh, I kept thinking back at you know the robots that we see today or the remote control devices we see today that are tracked. Um, That'll go into a building and disarm a a bomb or whatever. You know what's wrong with that kind of mobility? Something goes into a mine. As you said, they were all spent more time trying to demonstrate how to walk, and none of them did it well. They no, did a fine no, job of stumbling them. and falling. Which, yeah. and then they were sort of done at that point. So um, yeah, I mean, it, I was taken it, by that. The, I thought they they did a really good job at uh, you know. Showing maybe what a what a drunk robot would look like, uh, and some of them were, were pretty comical. They're more, uh, you know, more interesting than than seeing a drunk person walking. Anyway, Nate, what was your take on it? I, I was amazed that as they fall over. I'm just thinking a lot of those robots look very expensive, and you're just in there, just like, oh, oh. I hope none of the, the intricate componentries on the back. It's, it's just sort of satisfying seeing something that that's not yours that is very expensive, partially destroy itself. Yeah, uh, but uh, I mean, what I like about this is that, you know we, you know, that, that you know DARPA are getting getting out and uh, you know encouraging this sort of activity and and you know creating I guess a bit of a playing field because you know one of the interviews we saw uh, was with a student team you know they put everything together themselves without a huge amount of money and uh, you know the, the the sorts of things that often come out of these are, are great now they've been running it for a few years but. Uh, in time, I'm sure the the innovation that's produced will have a great flow-on effect. So. Yeah, and I think this is the future of R&D in the sense that you know hackathons and mashups and uh, maker spaces and those kinds of things kind of redefine the way people work with each other, the way they interact with one another, and the kind of creative environment you can kind of produce. So to your point, it was the teams that were much more impressive to me than the products. Mm. Um, you know, I thought maybe they missed some things on the use cases, but the point was they, they all approached it slightly differently. They were all going after the prize, and they all had completely different origins and funding models and all those things at work, yet they were all able to be competitive. They, I mean, they all fell down pretty good. Mm. So, Yep, and in the end, a, uh, a South Korean uh, team walked away with the... Um, and it was not an unsubstantial uh, prize, $2 million in uh, uh, prize money, I believe. So um, that's um, it's, it's kind of... Uh, um, got to be an encouragement to uh, to come up with something pretty good, right? And I mean, it's kind of like the conversation we've been having today about it started with bandwidth. Um, I mean, that is the enabler that you know people being able to communicate and work with each other um, in different ways in different places. Um, 
is really the, the thing that opens the door the, to that kind of creative talent. So to, to the point, you know, it was really interesting just to see the way they approached the problem, um, independent of what the results were. Mm. It's more about the process for me than it was the product. Yep. And you know, I guess that's that sort of collaboration over over time will will yield some pretty good uh, pretty good results. Um, now, for those that don't know, uh, DARPA is uh, the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency in the in the US. Um, so uh, part of the uh, uh, Department of Defence in the, in the US. And uh, yeah, I can I can see why they would be they'd be pretty interested in this this sort of thing. And uh, they've invested in. In all sorts of technological uh, advancements in the and past, and that are not even defense related. If you if you think about it, so DARPA brought us ARPANET, um, which is the genesis of the internet. That's so, right. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of the things that that uh, one of the, one of the robots I saw in the, in the videos you were showing was branded NASA, and they brought us all kinds of you know goodness like Velcro and Tang. So mm-hmm. you know, you never know what you're going to get through these projects, um, but they they generate a lot of stuff that has commercial appeal. Now, Jim, I'm I'm keen to hear a little bit about the sorts of things that you know you've been involved in. Um, yeah, maybe a little bit of background, some of the things you've been involved in in your career, and then um, you know I'd like to hear a little bit about what it is that you're uh, you're sharing here in Auckland because you're here for uh, the CIO summit that's happening at uh, at Sky City. Uh, but maybe a little bit of background on some of the things that you. So you've, I've been in the computer in industry longer than I'd like to than I'd like to admit. Um, <laughs> And working with you know what we're called mainframe computers and and derivatives thereof, and so my problems and the problems I've been working on have always been about how do you make machines do things, um, and then how do you evolve that forward to, into into current space? I think we find ourselves at a really really interesting time and an intersection of um, commercial technologies and commercial IT that we're all familiar with, and consumer IT, which is slightly different. We're talking about Apple watches and iPhones and and uh, uh, all those kinds of handheld devices and wearable technologies, and there's a there's a, a de- you know there's a there's a relationship between these things, and the the corporate IT folks oftentimes fair, fail to see the potential for the connection or the connection at all. Um, but at the end of the day, the guy with the Apple Watch um, is going to want to be able to use the Apple Watch, and he's going to want to be able to use it to do banking transactions or or anything you can imagine that that makes sense for that wearable device. That's going to require that our friends in commercial IT um, evolve ro- relatively quickly, and um, that's not generally that we're going you know that 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 discipline strong suit. Um, so I'm down here to speak about a topic that's really about <clears throat> the digital the digital data center and the evolution and the kinds of things that that CIOs are going to have to kind of take themselves through um, to go from being um, an internal utility that's not looked upon as being all that progressive to somebody who's a business partner that can help the business leverage all of these wonderful things we were talking about earlier today. Uh, that's their, that's a, the, you know the, a pretty steep challenge, and they get to do it on a flat budget or a declining budget, not a growing budget. So yeah, that's all o- often quite a challenge, isn't it? It certainly is. Yeah, uh, when I was with uh, with ASB uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago, actually, uh, the local bank um, they I know ASB well. Yep, they showed us some some of the work uh, yeah, they've been doing, and uh, yeah, uh, you, you know you mentioned Apple Watch there, and 
you know, they had a, a um, in development app for the Apple Watch and something for Android, and so you know, it's it's good to see that you know some of our organisations here, you know, locally are uh, you know recognising uh, the opportunities and the and and the needs to uh, uh, yeah not just be focused on on traditional uh, business technologies. Yeah, and I'll say that you know there's a spirit in in New Zealand that we don't necessarily see globally from a perspective of of um, entrepreneurial businesses, and so many of our customers in this geography uh, are early adopters. Um, we've got customers in, in the financial sector here in New Zealand and in government um, that are often, uh, believe it or not, leading edge in terms of their discipline and, and the things we can get them to do. And so it's, a, it's just an interesting fact, uh, a convenient truth, if you will, for today's conversation that we see a lot of innovation in those organizations and a lot of potential for, for innovation. They, they seem to be less reluctant to... Uh, to, to see the future than, than some organizations may be. But, I mean, I think it's going to be a lot more complicated than, than the obvious things, like um, we're going to put an app on the Apple Watch, and, and that, won't that be a sure. wonderful thing? Yeah. What does that achieve? You know, you know, what good. does that really achieve? Yeah. I mean, I look forward to, you know, there's uses of these technologies that are a bit contrived, and then there's uses of these technologies that can, can certainly make people's lives easier and, and, uh, and make the banks or whoever it may be that you're interfacing with a little more efficient to the point we're having a conversation about making payments payments earlier, mm-hmm. um, make them very natural acts that, that everyone's comfortable with. But there's a huge set of issues that we're going to face in the area of security and privacy um, and all those kinds of things. I mean, you know, think about, let's use the Apple Watch with its sensors that are monitoring your health and sending that kind of information to your phone. Well, what if that gets hacked? Um, what if you're relying on that to tell you when to take medicine or, or what dosage to take or whatever it may be? All of a sudden, those, those links are a lot more important than... than than we thought about before. And so my, my real fear is uh, um, as we get to the Internet of Things and all these wearable devices and things that are in our home and in our cars and all those kinds of things interacting for us, um, where are the protections for both privacy and security to make sure it's all operating the way we intended to do so? Well, I mean, we've heard a lot of cases recently about issues around security with, with all sorts of things from... Uh, you know, devices that are helping with with medication to um, I don't know, yeah, all, all manner of technologies. You know, there was uh, a new, um, um, you know, I've forgotten his surname, Barnaby Barnaby Jack was a, a New Zealand guy. He passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, yeah, he he hacked an ATM and had it sort of you know spitting out uh, cash, and there you know there are all these sorts of uh, you know, things that often the security aspects haven't been well well exactly. thought of. Is, the, is that a part of the role that Unisys uh, plays working working Absolutely. with your customers? You know, we're, we're we, you know we're we're very interested. We have a security practice. We're very interested in, in these sets of problems, um, both advanced threats, and we provide solutions around advanced threats. But also, um, how does the how does the corporate enterprise protect itself and protect the information it has so that it operates properly? Um, and that's the, I mean I think that's the the, the the biggest challenge we're going to have going forward is keeping private data private, um, keeping secure connections secure. I mean, you know, we can we can imagine all kinds of things in the IoT environment. My biggest nightmare is, you know, so um, 
actuators and, and sensors in a, in a refinery become wireless and, and automated because it's a wonderful thing to do. That's not something I'm particularly interested in having somebody hack into and throw yeah. a valve or, or spoofing a sensor so other things downstream happen. That's, that, yeah, the Internet of Things thing. does, does bring some you know, challenges with those, those types of devices, doesn't exactly. it? And you know, I guess I mean, we already have, have you know, risks associated with, with what's out there now, but if we rely on more and more of these uh, devices, uh, you know, we, we will, at a point, you know, you come to assume that the information that's coming through is, is reasonably accurate. Right. And, uh, yeah, as you say, you make flow-on decisions based on that. Uh, There's some benign things could, like... Could put money, lives at risk. And, and benign things like money spewing out of ATM machines are entertaining. <laughs> but, you know, what if you can get on the airplane and hack into the flight control system? That, yeah, that, which was certainly a, a discussion point recently, wasn't it? There you go. Do you have any views on whether that was that was actually a reality or not? I, I don't. But I mean, but the point is, you know, it's when when we tend to see breakdowns in these spaces, they're failures of imagination. They're mm-hmm. things we didn't imagine could happen. And I think we have to get ourselves wrapped around um, being very conservative about the set of things that can happen, um, because it's it, it tends to be these innocent little things that get you in a real in a real jam. Yeah, so I mean, how do you, how do you help uh, you know organizations you know with considering these sorts of security? So challenges? it's through a set of services and products that we offer on that side of our business that are really about helping people instill the discipline in the way they construct their networks, the way they manage their networks, and then also a set of technologies um, that allow them to segregate a network so that. Uh, um, servers and endpoints will only talk to one another. I mean, the, the adage I use with people is we teach our kids not to talk to strangers. Shouldn't we teach our servers not to talk to strangers? <laughs> um, and so, I mean, if you can do that in, in a network topology and get systems to operate in a way where they'll only talk to those that they've been properly introduced to, uh, that goes a long way. And, I mean, how hard do you find it is to solve these security you know, challenges? You know, in New Zealand, you know, I, can think of, well, I can think of lots of different one, ones we've had there were uh, I think uh, public public terminals in the um, office. Uh, the yeah social security office and somehow they were linked into the the, the core network uh, for this particular government department people were able to walk in there and access you know all sorts of information I mean to me that sounds absolutely bizarre but you know there would have been somewhere but in you the know process where something thing. got forgotten. It was a chain of events, and yeah. so somebody designed something, and maybe the designer thought it was going to be a private network or, or a secure network, and then by the time it got around to, to implementation, somebody saw an opportunity to economize and um, and made some other choices, and the next thing you know, you have the situation you just described. Yeah, and I um, guess... And, you know, there was a, a breach in the U.S., uh, a fairly well-known, I won't name the, the name of the company, but it was the hack came in through their HVAC system, through their air conditioning, where they large company globally dispersed um, had a had a contract for someone to monitor air conditioning in their buildings makes good sense they monitor it remotely makes good sense it's got network attached sensors all makes great sense until that network gets bridged with the point of sale system and now it's not about attacking the point of sale system it's about coming in through some other means and you find yourself on the inside of the corporate network um, wandering around waiting for the thing that you're waiting for yeah, so that's it's a, it's that's discipline that's in the real, way you do that. You, you do those things that that's going to make the difference. Yeah, and I think you know it, it's common for uh, certainly within you know smaller businesses for there to be that disconnect around technology, security, and how these things tie in. So uh, you know we've come across it before. We're uh, within uh, my company where 
you know, some will say, oh, we've just had somebody in, install a, uh, a new video surveillance system or a new alarm system or, oh, can you just link that into the network and open up XYZ port on, exactly. the, uh, on the firewall to, uh, to make that work? That's all that's required. Um, we, don't, we don't need any other help other than that. Just do that, thank you, uh, without any understanding of what the flow and consequences are that you've potentially uh, you know, opened up a, a, a big gaping hole. And I think the huge problem here is there's a generational change where if you think about it, you know, um, in the last few decades, you know, IT was not something that was really being done by small and medium businesses. It had to be done by, by large IT shops or professionals. Um, now, small and home office, you know, you can buy routers, you can buy the components, the cables have the right shapes on the end, you plug them together, and it all seems to work. Um, but you don't know what you got. And, and as we lose that expertise, as it becomes a plug-and-play kind of environment, what are you controlling and what are you not controlling and where are the boundaries? And you know, on the on the flip side, you know, a, a small organisation can't necessarily spend spend uh, you know to have these things catered to. So you know, there's just a, there's a large level of trust, isn't there? Right. But I also think it goes to the point where many of these organisations don't even think about the IT problem. They simply they're a consumer of it, and you know, they they plug this stuff together, and it either works or it doesn't work, and they call the help desk, and it gets fixed, and now they're off and running. And these things are very ad hoc in nature, and they don't even imagine the problems that they might have. So, as as part of uh, as part of what Unisys, um, part of what you do is, is helping organisations around the, the practices and and yeah. you know how they put the right processes in place to you know. Right, we have a complete suite of services and products. So there's mm. both products that you know or technology products that can can be brought to bear for specific security problems, and then a practice of experts that can also help in best practices and examining the way you're architected and the like. So that's one part of our business. Mm. Nate. Um, your company, Three Bit, you know, you write you write software. Um, yep. How much is security, you know, concerns in your in your mind uh, from a software development point of view? You're writing, you know, tools for business customers. They need to be able to, uh, you know, ha- have some, uh, you know, confidence that what you produce is going to be secure. Is that is that hard, hard work keeping up with that that side of things? It is. It is massively hard work to the fact where we've, uh, I think. You know, last year we just completed moving all our server infrastructure. We were maintaining it in-house. We've moved it to a third party to look after. It's huge because um, we look after a lot of medical clients, and if we had a data breach with one of those medical clients, I can guarantee that we'd lose every other one of the clients in that particular industry overnight. Um, but it's not only um, people with nefarious wanting to get in and, and delete data, but it's also users. Uh, someone could quite easily have a user where they add them to an administrator group to, to do something, you know, because they can't get access to it and they forget to revoke those privileges and all of a sudden they go in and delete a whole lot of stuff accidentally and all, the, all that data is gone. So I, I think from a software point of view, security is probably one of the most important things and it's a bit, a bit of a balancing act really with between security and between that user experience and, and functionality and being able to do that sort of stuff. So it all that's where a good software developer can have all those things like a pie in their mind and then as they develop do it in such a way um, but yeah no security is amazingly important like even the basics that you know we're taught at uni like I'm very uncomfortable with remote desktop being available outside to you know as Jim was saying to devices that don't understand the first thing we do when we get a new um, virtual server is everything's locked down um, the main stuff that can get out is port 80, which is HTTP, um, but everything else is only available from our office. So the fact that if the guys want to get into service, they've got to go through work to get out. Mm. So, um, yeah, re- 
I'd say the most important thing around software is definitely security. And it's not just the uh, security of the software, but also the hardware as well. Things like can people get physical access to the, the boxes and that sort of stuff. So you've got to have really good trust in your data center providers that they're not going to give people access. Because once you've got access to the box, there's all sorts of fun things you can do. So, yeah, security, re- really important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. It's both physical and and, um, and logical security. And Jim, what are the? Have you got any interesting stories you can you can share on uh, you know, things that you've come across in, in recent years uh, that that relate to organisations that have uh, yeah taken advantage of consumer technology and have really you know gained some great benefits out of out of doing so, but have made it work within the the corporate environment? Yeah, there's been some there's been some great stories. Um, uh, one out of South America, where a large water company. Um, that it operated in a traditional manner. They sent a monthly water bill out to their millions of customers, literally millions of customers, yeah. and then had to deal with items coming back, um, you know, checks and, and stubs, and to process those on a monthly basis. And they went to a, um, a, a phone-based system um, with an ATM and uh, used the camera on the ATM to read a barcode on the phone so the consumer could actually go and pay his bill now at an ATM. Oh, wow. Um, and, and so this change it was a game changer for them in terms of using consumer technology. Their customers all have phones, right? Yeah. Um, as a way now of completing the, completing the payment. And this predates any kind of Apple Pay kind of thing where they just cooperated with the local banking network. And now you and your ATM can cause a bill to be, to be paid. And, and you know, it, was, it was pretty interesting. Another one was a retailer that had a paper catalog and their sales reps had to use this paper catalog and they reproduced it on a monthly basis and um, they went electronic with it and it, you know, it, it solved all the problems you would expect and the, the key for them was again a handheld device. Um, but we've seen it in every industry where um, either a consumer device in the hand of a, hands of a consumer changed the problem or a consumer grade device in the hand of a professional used in a different way solved the problem. Um, it goes from, you know, we have an airline customer that uses tablets to get out amongst the customers in line at the airport as opposed to you having to walk up to the counter and they can do everything off a tablet that they could do at the, could do at the, the ticket counter. That's just a different way for them to deliver service. So, I mean, we see it in every facet and every dimension where, where consumer, consumer-based technologies are changing the way um, forward-looking organizations operate with their customers. Yeah, that's great, and it's always it's always good to hear some of those stories as well because it can inspire new thought. Oh, if they did that, you know, what could what could we be doing? So yeah, there's some really interesting ones where we were looking at one solution where we were going to use iPhone devices to replace barcode readers, specialized handheld you know barcode um, guns. Yeah, and at the end of the day, even though there was a huge financial advantage to using. The, the, the consumer device, um, the client chose not to go with it because they were afraid the consumer device would get stolen. Nobody was stealing barcode guns. Of course. No, but, true. You know, but, but iPhones, on the other hand, have some street, have some street value. Um, so it's just kind of an interesting wrinkle in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I guess there are uh, yeah, all, all sorts of uh, things that you need, you need to consider, right? All kinds of considerations. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. Yep. And, you know, we, we certainly see uh, you know, more and more, for instance, iPads in, uh, in retailers. And you know, I notice this a lot more in the U.S. You've probably found the same, that compared to New Zealand, you go to a cafe... 
in the U in the US, and I mean you know about this because you run a cat own a cafe, own a cafe, so I know. Um, but uh, you know the the idea of having an iPad there as the as the till, and uh, one when I was in, um, in California recently, and I hadn't seen this this particular uh, type before, was a, a little stand that the iPad was on, and you know one moment it was them keying in the order, and then they flip it around and you sign it. Yeah, and then they just yeah. they just tilt it over towards you. Of course, it changes its orientation automatically. And you uh, you sign it on the screen. It was it was brilliant. Such a such a simple thing. But I hadn't and uh, look hadn't at the seen cost factor of that. A POS system or a, or a, any kind of sophisticated system for an enterprise like that is a very expensive specialized solution. Uh, an iPad grade device is not. No, well, and it, it comes back to the, I know lots about point of sale because of the, the cafe thing. But yeah. Vend, which is a good mm. New Zealand tech story, they've got a, a really nice iPad app, and I, I know what point of sale costs because I've looked at it. It's five mm. or six thousand dollars. Whereas you can have an iPad, and even if you're thinking about doing a remote event where you need equipment for just the one day, the hiring costs are, are horrendous. Whereas you can just say, grab the iPad, put Vend on it, and you've got a full point of sale. You add in a an FPOS unit so you can take credit cards and exactly. and, and, and not right. away you're ready. Away you go. You just need to make sure you lock it down if it's if it's left lying around. Being uh, yeah, you know, technology like that falls into the category. Well, I, had the, um, I had the iPad, and it just reminded me I was at the test one of the Tesla stores. I was amazed they've got Tesla stores. I thought they you only bought directly from the factory, but they had one when I was in. Um, in well, they're, just, they're just showrooms. You can't buy them. Yeah. Oh, you can't buy them there. No, okay. no, you no, can't buy the car. You just look at it. So yeah. I bought a T-shirt because that was the only thing yeah. I could afford there. And yeah, and the guy pulled out an iPad and, and did exactly what you said, mm-hmm. rang the, the charge up and then gave it to me. And then I, mm-hmm. and I was just like, well, this is, I want a car and that. <laughs> 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 I did ask him what it would cost to FedEx back to New Zealand. And he just gave me the strangest sort of, uh, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Oh, no, it's, um, it's good. It's, it's been a good chat. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Jim, for, uh, for joining us. Um, anything else that we've we've missed from uh, from your, your what you're covering here in New Zealand that you wanted to? Uh, no, it's always I, I, I like getting out into the different geographies and speaking with customers and 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 new people I meet. Thanks for having me uh, uh, join you today. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, then. Thank you again, uh, Nate. That's right. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, where do we uh, where do we track you down online? That you're uh, you're a bit of a, a tweeter. Yeah, so I'm just at Nate on Twitter, which you can find me, or on my blog on Geekzone. And I've just blogged about my Huawei trip and about the phone. So if you want to see what happened in Singapore, Excellent. I've got a good review around the P8. So great, great, and. Um Jim, how uh, how accessible are you online? I'm very accessible. I don't have a, a short Twitter address like uh, <laughs> like Nate does. Mine's uh, um, I don't remember what it is. It's like Unisys Chief Engineer or something like that. But I uh, I, I try to play in all of the spaces and yeah. uh, and and blog on on topics that make sense. So you can find me if you want to look for me. Yep, yep. Okay, so you, you, you're happy to respond to, uh, to, to tweets and so on? H- happy to. Yep, we had a guest on here a couple of weeks ago, and he gave out his email address, which, which was new, because that's a little bit, you know, it seems a little bit old school, because we're so used to using Twitter and so What's on. What's email? Um, and, uh, yeah, he made, he made the comment a day or two later that, um, you yeah, know, a, a, a few people had uh, already been in, been in touch. And so, uh, you yeah, know, I would encourage, you know, listeners, if you, uh, if you do want to interact, then... Uh, Usually, most of our our guests are, are friendly enough, and I can attest to uh, uh, Nate and and uh, and and Jim's friendliness. That uh, I'm sh- I'm sure they will get back in touch. So uh, definitely, hey, thank you, thank you both for uh, for joining us, uh, and we'll be back again with a new episode again uh, next week. You can track down our other podcasts at podcasts.co.nz. Thanks, everyone. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. 
proactive and strategic IT.